So have you ever considered just how fortunate we are to have pictures? You know, I was looking through my phone this past week, and I started realizing I've got over a thousand pictures right here on my iPhone. Right in my pocket at any moment, I can pull out hundreds of memories and think back to some great times in my family's life, to special people who have uh, meant a lot to me. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the pictures I came across this week was a picture of my father and, and brother and I uh, taken at my brother's ordination service a few years ago. Uh, this was just a few months before my dad passed away. And, you know, I came across this picture and I thought, what, a, what an incredible treasure to have this special memory of my dad and uh, to, to be able to, at any moment to, to flip open my phone and see these incredible pictures, these reminders of, of just the special people in my life. And, you know, we, we take that for granted a lot, the reality that we have, the, the access that we have to these significant memories. You know, do you realize photography has only been around for a little over 200 years? 1814 was the very first picture that was taken. It wasn't until 1940 that, that handheld cameras were widely accessible and available to the general public. And then I remember, you know, in the mid-90s getting my first digital camera with uh, 2.3 megapixels. And I thought, wow, you know, this is incredible. I can take a picture and see on my one-inch-by-one-inch screen instantaneously images that I've just shot. And now we have these smartphones in our hands where we can take pictures at a moment's notice and capture these special memories. Well, today we are going to look at another picture. We're going to look at a picture that Jesus gave to his followers. Now, Jesus didn't have the luxury of taking a, a snapshot or a, or a digital photograph like we do today, but, but Jesus gave his disciples a picture to remind them just of the significance of his mission and why he had come to bring salvation to his people. And the picture that Jesus gave his disciples is what we know today as, as the Lord's Supper. It was, it was the last supper that Jesus would share with his disciples. And today, here at Lakes Free, we honor the Lord's Supper. We remember this last supper that Jesus had with his disciples on the first Sunday of every month when we gather together to participate in communion. That's really what communion is. Communion is a reminder of this last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And it was a supper where he instituted an ongoing pattern for his people to serve as a visual reminder, a picture, if you will, of the incredible gift that he would give us when he went to the cross to die on behalf of our sins. That's what the Lord's Supper really is. It's a picture, a reminder of God's incredible grace to us. And so at that last supper 2,000 years ago, Jesus served his disciples a meal that would forever nourish the church. Even to this very day, we are still blessed by this act of participating in communion, the Lord's Supper. This morning, what I want to do is I want to read for us from Luke chapter 22. Now, we're not going to read the entire account of the Lord's Supper. What I want to focus on today really is, is the theological meaning in the meal itself. 
And so we're going to look at verses 7 through 20. We're going, to, we're going to skip over the stuff about Judas betraying Jesus. We're going to focus specifically on the meal itself and the meaning in the meal that we know today as communion. So if you'd like to follow along or open your Bibles to Luke 22, we're going to start in verse 7, and we're going to look at this meal with meaning this morning. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So here we have the account of the Lord's Supper. This last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, which for the last 2,000 years has continued to hold incredible meaning for God's people. It's a meal, as I said, that we celebrate here at Lakes Free every month, the first Sunday of every month. We join together to take communion. And what we're going to see this morning is that there is incredible meaning in this meal. Just to give you some context of where we are today, we are quickly approaching the end of our series through the book of Luke. We've been spending this entire past year journeying through Luke's gospel, looking at Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We had skipped ahead earlier to look at the Passion Week episodes, the Passion Week stories, the, the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion of Jesus. We, we jumped ahead on Easter Sunday to talk about the resurrection. And now we're coming back to look at some of these significant events that led up to Jesus' trials and his crucifixion. And so this Last Supper, the story we just read, took place on the eve of Jesus' arrest, the night before his crucifixion, three days before his resurrection. And so that's where we are this morning in our series. And what we're going to look at this morning, as I shared, is the, is the meaning within the meal that we know as communion or the Lord's Supper. The first thing I want to highlight for us from this meal this morning is that, number one, it was a Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples were celebrating together on that eve a Passover meal. Now, we cannot rightly understand the meaning behind communion, the meaning behind the Lord's Supper without a proper understanding of the historical context behind the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. See, if we don't understand the meal and the reason why they had gathered, we are going to be missing out on a tremendously significant piece 
of, of the depth and richness that we know when we take communion. The, the, the Passover meal that Jesus was sharing with his disciples is a meal that goes back 1,400 years before the time of Christ. It's a meal that goes all the way back to the time when God's people, the Israelites, were in captivity and slavery in the nation of Egypt. And the book of Exodus tells the story of how God ultimately brought liberation to his people after living as slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt. Now, can you imagine that? 400 years, generation after generation after generation in bondage, enslaved, no freedoms, no rights, anything they were told by the Egyptians they had to do or they risked their very lives. This was the oppression that God's people were living under for over 400 years. And you can only imagine how often God's people cried out for deliverance. Lord, when will you rescue us? When will you save us? When will you restore your people? And when we read the book of Exodus, God shares with us his plan to liberate the Israelites. If you look at Exodus chapter 7 through 12, for example, you can read the account of the Exodus where God raised up Moses to lead his people out of the nation of Egypt. The Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And so God began to send plagues upon the land of Egypt. Frogs, locusts, boils, turning the Nile River into blood. And over and over again, God sent these plagues as warnings to try to get Pharaoh to release his people. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened against God. And so finally, in the culmination of these 10 plagues, God sent the worst of all, the most fearsome of all the plagues. God told the people that he was going to strike down the firstborn of Egypt. All of the firstborn in Egypt would be put to death as God's final warning to Pharaoh to let his people go. God had given him plenty of warnings, and yet Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And so the plagues culminated in this 10th plague, the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And this is where the name, the Passover, comes from. This is where the Passover meal comes from that Jesus and his disciples were practicing that eve 2,000 years ago. In Exodus chapter 12, we see the account of the Passover meal. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year-old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats." Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and internal parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. 
with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then in verses 21 through 29, we read what took place on that first Passover. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. This is the story of the Passover. This is what the, Jew, the Jews had celebrated for over 1,400 years as a memorial to God's deliverance of them out of bondage in Egypt. And so from that time forward, even to our present day, every year when the Passover comes, the Jewish people remember and reenact those events to honor the Lord's deliverance of his people from slavery and oppression in Egypt. This was the meal that Jesus and his disciples were sharing together 2,000 years ago. But as we're going to see this morning, Jesus was about to take this Passover meal and inject it with new meaning. He was going to completely redefine it for his people. While the Passover that we just read about memorialized God's definitive act of salvation in the Old Testament, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus reveals the arrival of a new era in God's plan of salvation. That in him, in Jesus, the true Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice for our sins has arrived. God has sent a deliverer. And just like the blood of the lamb protected the Israelites from God's judgment in Egypt, so now the blood of Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, shelters us from God's judgment against sin. Understand this, friends. The Lord's Supper is a Passover meal, but it's a Passover meal with new meaning. As the book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, 
cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Friends, we no longer make sacrifices for our sin because Jesus himself became the perfect sacrifice. Jesus took the penalty of our sins upon himself when he went to the cross and he became the true Passover lamb, the eternal Passover lamb, who once for all time shed his blood so that God might deliver us from our sin. Have you received that deliverance? Have you embraced that incredible gift that Jesus gave us when he died on the cross? This is what the Passover meal was all about. And Jesus took this meal and infused it with new meaning. This is what we know today as communion or the Lord's Supper. The second thing I want to highlight about our meal this morning in Luke chapter 22 is that it was a prepared meal. It was a prepared meal. Let me, let me read for you again from verses 8 through 13 of our passage this morning. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. You know, it's very interesting when reading Luke's account of the Last Supper. You can't help but notice Jesus' sovereign control over the entire event. Jesus was in control of the entire event. Nothing about this meal, from the preparations of Peter and John, to the stranger carrying the jar of water, to the upper room and all of its furnishings in place, nothing in this event happened outside of God's infinite wisdom and plan. Like a master composer arranging all the parts of a great symphony. Jesus orchestrated this entire event. He was in control of it all. And what's amazing to think about in all of this is the fact that in just a few short hours, Jesus would be betrayed. He would be arrested, tried, and ultimately tortured. And friends, Jesus knew all of this. He knew what was coming. And yet, here we see the Lamb of God calmly preparing the way for his own suffering and sacrifice at Calvary. Why? Because, friends, Jesus had fully embraced his mission and he trusted the sovereign plan of his heavenly Father. He knew that his heavenly Father had an unfailing love for him. And so Jesus could orchestrate this event and lead his disciples into this event with confidence and assurance and peace because he trusted in his Father's plan. What an example for us to follow. What an example the Lord's given us here. In the twilight of the darkest night of his life, Jesus trusted his Father's plan and he rested in the promise of God's unfailing love. And you know something, friends? Life isn't always going to go the way you expected it to go. Maybe in your relationships, your family, your kids, your job. 
your education. Life doesn't always go the way we expect it to go. And there's going to be times in your life when God and his sovereign wisdom will allow you to experience trials that sometimes will feel so heavy, you'll wonder if you're going to be able to stand. And yet, friends, if the example of Jesus here teaches us anything, it's that we can trust our Heavenly Father's leading, no matter the course he sets before us. And not only his leading, but his love. God is faithful. And his love never lets us down. I was talking this past week with my friends Pat and Ginger Larson. Many of you know Pat and Ginger. Two years ago, they experienced probably the the greatest trial that any parent, any family could ever go through. Their 11-year-old daughter, Brooklyn, was killed in a car accident. I can't even imagine the, the devastation and the pain that that reality would bring into your life and to your family. And many of us have walked with Pat and Ginger through the last two difficult years. One of the things that's impressed me most about Pat and Ginger and their daughter Katie throughout this whole ordeal is their unwavering faith and trust in God. I don't know if I would have that kind of strength to trust God in a trial like that. I hope I would. I pray I would. I know many of you would stand beside me if I ever did. But you know what? Pat and Ginger have displayed an incredible confidence and trust and hope in God and in God's unfailing love, even in the darkest of trials. See, just like Jesus Christ trusted in the divine plan of his heavenly Father, for the last 2,000 years, God's people have looked to the example of Jesus and his trust and his faith and his confidence in God's sovereign plans. And it has inspired them with hope, even in the greatest trials. Pat and Ginger have continually expressed their confidence in God's unfailing love. And we've seen how God has even used this devastation in their life to bring about incredible blessing for others. The summer after Brooklyn passed away, Pat and Ginger started a scholarship fund in her memory up at Camp Shamanah. In fact, there's a mention of it in your bulletin here this morning. They wanted to start a scholarship fund to help unchurched kids get to camp so that they could hear the saving news of Jesus Christ that saved their daughter's life, that gave them the assurance that Brooklyn lives for eternity. And so now we've had handfuls of kids who have gone to camp the last two summers out of this scholarship fund set up in Brooklyn's name. Their lives have been changed for eternity because of the faithful response of a godly family trusting in the Lord, even in the darkest of trials. In the story of the Last Supper, Jesus gives us a model for that kind of trust, for facing the darkest times of life. And at the heart of this trust was the God who was portrayed in the meal that Jesus would share with his disciples. A faithful God who never abandons his people. A God who brings deliverance when all hope seems lost. Friends, do you know that God? 
Do you know his unfailing love? I can promise you, whatever your trials today, whatever your circumstances, whatever your ordeal, we have a faithful God who will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He loves you, and you can trust him. I promise you this morning, no matter your circumstances, if you'll cry out in faith to the Lord, he'll be there for you. He'll be your Prince of Peace. The third thing we see in our passage this morning, not only was it a Passover meal and a prepared meal, but it was a purposeful meal. Jesus gave us incredible meaning in the Lord's Supper. I heard a story this past week about a little girl who had recently attended her first communion service with her parents. After church that Sunday, the, the little girl's mom asked her during lunch, so, so what did you think of communion? The little girl said, well, the snacks in children's church are a lot better, and we get a big cup of juice too. You know, obviously this little girl didn't truly understand the meaning of what we do in communion. What is the purpose of communion? What is it that Jesus instituted here at this Passover meal, at the Lord's Supper, this celebration that we participate in each month here at Lakes Free? Well, there are four purposes to communion that the Lord instituted. The first is Jesus gave us communion as a way to remember his death. When we take communion, we are remembering Christ's death. You know, tomorrow is Memorial Day, as we mentioned earlier. And thousands and thousands of people around our nation will remember the sacrifice of our fallen men and women who gave their lives for our country. I'll never forget when I was in eighth grade, my family took a trip one summer to Washington, D.C. And we went and looked at all the sites and the most powerful memory of that trip was going with my dad to the Vietnam Memorial. My dad didn't fight in Vietnam, but I'll never forget as he walked over the length of that memorial, as he came across dozens of names of his friends from high school who died in that war, my dad just wept, remembering these guys that he had grown up with. I remember my dad quoting from the Gospel of John where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friend. I'll never forget that. A powerful, powerful memory. And in the same way as we honor the sacrifice of our veterans who gave their lives on Memorial Day, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was the consummate expression of God's love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Why? Because he so loved the world that he gave his only Son. The cross was also the moment where God inaugurated a new covenant of salvation. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus declared in verse 20 that the cup represented a new covenant in his blood. What was Jesus talking about here? What was this new covenant? 
Well, Jesus was telling his disciples here that in him, God was fulfilling a promise that he had made 600 years earlier through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God had told the people of Israel 600 years earlier that a new covenant was coming. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God had told his people that a new covenant was coming. The sacrificial system would be replaced. The law would be replaced. God would write the law on our hearts. And, and he would give us a new spirit and he would die on our behalf to remove our sins for us once for all time. He had promised this 600 years earlier and now Jesus is telling his disciples at the Lord's Supper that this cup, this red wine, this dark, rich, blood-looking cup represents the blood that I will pour out on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And so, friends, next Sunday, when we participate in communion once again, we will be remembering and celebrating what God has done for us in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. He paid the ultimate price. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The second reason why the Lord gave us communion was so that we could share in Christ's life. This is where the word communion comes from. It means to commune with Jesus Christ. And so we share in Christ's life. Now, now while the Lord's Supper serves to remind us of his sacrificial death, there's also a sense in which the eating and drinking of the body and blood of Christ unites us with Jesus in his life. Remember, friends, Jesus Christ is a living Savior. He's a resurrected Lord. This is why, as Christians, we worship God on Sundays. Why Sunday? Sunday was the day of the resurrection. We worship a risen Savior, a a, a resurrected Lord. And communion is a reminder to us that in our redemption, we share in the life of Christ. And not only do we share in the life of Christ, but Christ himself empowers us for life. Jesus himself expressed this reality in his ministry. Look at what he said in John 15, verses 4 through 5. Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus wasn't just saying this to his disciples 2,000 years ago. This is for all believers of all time. When we unite our lives with Christ, the risen Savior, the the resurrected Lord, the one who empowers us for life, just like those flowers that grow out of the vine, that shoot out of the trunk of the tree, just like that life that springs 
from the center of the plant, so too, Jesus says, he is the vine. And in him, we experience life. And so when we participate in communion, we are not only remembering what Christ did in the past in his death, redeeming us from our sins, but we are reminded that we have an ongoing communion with Christ. That because of his life, we too have life. He continues to empower us for life today. This is more than just memorializing Jesus. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we truly are communing with him. The third reason why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper was to affirm our unity in Christ to affirm our unity in Christ. The Lord's Supper, friends, has always been a fellowship meal. It it serves not only to unite us to Christ, but also with our fellow believers in the church who make up the body of Christ here on earth. It's a corporate celebration. It's a corporate meal. In fact, the Apostle Paul described it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. He says, because there is one loaf, Jesus, we who are many, the church, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. See, that's what communion is about. It's a corporate meal. It's a fellowship meal. This is why, friends, nobody takes communion alone. I mean, has anybody here ever gone to their kitchen cupboards and pulled out the crackers and and some grape juice and said, you know what, I'm going to take communion this morning? We don't do that. That'd be absurd, right? You can pray alone. You can read your Bible alone. You can do devotions alone. But we don't do communion alone. Because it's a communal celebration. It's a representation that reminds us that we are one as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united. And so we take it together as a corporate celebration. This is also why when we celebrate communion, I always explain that this is a meal for believers only. Okay, this is a meal for believers only. Now, now, has a non-believer ever shown up at Lakes Free and taken communion with us? I'm sure it's happened, all right? Next week when we pass the elements, will a non-believer potentially take a cracker and a cup of juice? And, yeah, they might. But you know what? For a non-believer, it's just a cracker and it's just a little cup of juice, nothing more. But for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, there's a deeper spiritual meaning behind it. And part of that meaning is that we remember that in the taking of the bread and the cup, we are truly one as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We are supernaturally united because we share together in the vine. We share together in the body and the blood. We are one in Christ. Fourthly, Jesus gave us communion to help us anticipate our eternity with him. He gave us communion so that we might anticipate our eternity with him. I once heard a pastor say, the world drinks to forget, the Christian drinks to remember. It's an interesting statement. See, when we partake of the cup, we are reminded that the Lord is coming again. In verse 17 of our passage today, Jesus said he wouldn't eat of this meal or drink of this cup until that day he shared it anew with us in his Father's kingdom. When we take communion, we are reminded that Jesus is coming again. He's returning for his people one day. The kingdom of God is coming. And as we've talked about the past two Sundays, this is the basis for the Christian's hope. Friends, a Christian without hope is a Christian who has forgotten the promises of our Lord. 
A Christian without hope is a Christian who has forgotten that God is sovereign and we can trust in his good and perfect plans. A Christian without hope is a Christian who's forgotten that the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A Christian without hope is a Christian who's forgotten that Jesus is coming again. He's not abandoned us. He's coming again and he will right every wrong. He will bring justice where there is injustice. He will eradicate death and disease and sin and evil and perversion once for all time. And we will experience life as we were always intended to know it. Free from the stain of this fallen world. This is what we remember when we celebrate communion. What a picture the Lord has given us here, friends. I want to I encourage us this morning. May we never take the Lord's Supper for granted. I, I know that for many of us, we've grown up in the church, you've taken communion thousands of times. But, but I pray that this message today might serve as, a, as an inspiration and a powerful reminder to us that, that next week when those elements are passed, this is a meal with meaning. This is a representation of the sacrifice of our Savior so that we could know eternal life. This is a meal that unites us with our Lord and unites us with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a meal that points to our eternal hope. There's something powerful when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You see, for many people, they mistakenly think that this is just another ritual. This is just another ritual that we perform. But friends, remember this, the ritual was given to point us to a relationship. And when we drink the cup, when we eat the bread, it's more than a ritual. It's a reminder that God wants a relationship with each and every one of us here. And he paid the price to purchase that relationship. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, Jesus' apostle John tells us, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. That's what communion's all about. And friends, I just, my, my heart's prayer this morning is that if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that you might do that. That the next Sunday when we gather together to share in the elements, the bread and the cup, that, that you might be able to take that bread and cup and know with certainty that Jesus has purchased your salvation. That you too are a child of God. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. A ritual that points us to the greatest relationship you can ever know. To know your creator, to be united with him in a saving relationship. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this meal with meaning. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us this picture of our salvation so that for generations to come, your people could be reminded of what it is you've done for us through your death on the cross. Jesus, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for how you have redeemed us and delivered us from our slavery to sin. We thank you, Lord, that we are no longer trapped in a sacrificial system that requires blood sacrifice after blood sacrifice as a temporary cleansing, 
but that you came as the perfect Lamb of God to lay down your life so that we could know you, so that we could be pure, so that we could be free of our sin. Jesus, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't embraced that gift of salvation, I pray that even right now they might cry out to you and just say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I want to accept the gift that you gave me when you died on the cross. I put my trust in you right here, right now, this morning. And may they know, Lord, that you are faithful and that they are a child of God for all eternity. Lord, help us never take the Lord's Supper for granted. Help us to always reflect on the faithfulness and love of our great God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.